All right, good evening, everyone. So my assigned topic was how we can serve the church as older singles. Um, the term older single probably includes the widest age range of almost any of the, the uh, life stages that are being talked about in these sessions, and it may include those never married and also those that have been widowed. We use the term older single. I guess how old do you have to be to be older? Older than what or older than who? Um, some questions that just kind of went through my mind as I was thinking of this. I don't really have the answers to that, and that's not really the point of this topic tonight. But I do know that everyone has something to add to the church's body, whether single or married, and that's what this session is to address. So I'm not necessarily planning to, to call for feedback, but if you have um, any input that you would like to stick in along the way, uh, feel free to speak up. I'd like to start by looking at the passage in 1 Corinthians 12. I wasn't here last evening, but I understand uh, Lowell talked about that passage a little bit last night. And I'm going to be reading verses 12 to 14 in 1 Corinthians 12. <laughs> For as the body is one and hath many members, and all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit are, all, are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we, we, whether we be bond or free, and you could insert there maybe, married or single, and have been all made to drink into one Spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. So we've heard, we've heard some comments here already this evening about unity in the church and how we need the different gifts and, and talents and different abilities. And that's some of how I'm going to approach this talk as well, how married and single are working together in the church. I have a quote here from a blog called Intersect. Um, this is written by Anna Schaefer and makes some comments that I really like about these verses. While the passage is talking about spiritual gifts, I believe Paul's point is also true for believers in different seasons of life. Everyone, regardless of life stage, is vital to the health of the body because we all bring a different perspective to our unified calling. We need older members to share their wisdom with the younger generation. We need younger members to bring fresh ideas. We need married couples to demonstrate godly relationships to those who aren't yet married and we need singles. In this session, I will be talking quite a bit about singlehood, obviously, and in some cases, comparing it with marriage. This is not to make one seem inferior or superior to the other, but to explore how the two can work together in a church setting. Uh, some of what I'll be bringing is some of my own thoughts and putting, um, obviously, putting that with scripture verses, and it also have some from blogs and articles that I've read uh, like the quote that I just read a bit ago. I've kind of divided my talk into three main parts. Um, first, I'm going to start out with some comparisons of how singles should view the rest of the church and also how the rest of the church can view singles. After that, I'm planning to address some of the questions that the committee gave, and I think maybe everybody in these sessions got similar questions. 
And then in the third part, I want to look at some people in the Bible that were single, or at least we assume they may have been, um, some of them we don't know for sure, that served God in a, a specific calling as, as singles. So looking both ways, how can the church and singles view each other? The points I have maybe don't all apply to our church or our congregation directly, but I think they're still good points to consider. And some of these points, I wasn't quite sure which category to put them in because they can, they can go either way. So first of all, how should singles view the church? Be willing to get involved. If there's, if there's things to do, um, get involved. As a, as a single person, it can be sometimes tempting to just sit at home or go off in your own little world. And this can, this can vary, of course, with different personalities. But be willing to get involved by attending church events, volunteering for work projects, or accepting church offices, even. A second thing is not to be critical. And I know this one can come easy for me sometimes. It's easy to criticize people that are at different situations in life. Um, you can get irritated at squawking babies at church or youth people that don't behave themselves when they're sitting in church or something like that. But for me, I, I don't want to be critical of that. Um, everybody's in a, a different situation in life, and we could all look at each other and be critical, but to, to look at the good points and, and look at, at potential. Another way that singles can view the church is remember that you're not a second-class citizen, or maybe not view of the church, but a thing to, to keep in mind. Um, those that are married can correct me here if I'm wrong, but I don't think there's any kind of spiritual arrival when someone gets married. Um, God needs dedicated workers in his kingdom, both married and single. I have a quote here by Ben Kampmeyer. He says, when churches talk about marriage so much, it causes single people to feel like a kind of second-class citizen awaiting an upgrade to married life as the final state for a Christian. And I'm not saying that because I feel that a lot or anything. Maybe some people have felt it, but um, that, that was one perspective and something that, that could uh, possibly happen or enter people's minds sometimes. So on the reverse, how should churches view singles? Obviously, the not being critical part could be on this list as well. Um, one that I, that I came across was offer opportunities to serve. So this is kind of the opposite one of the being willing to get involved. There needs to be opportunities. Encourage singles to use their gifts on committees and in church offices. And I think we do well here at Weavertown to, to uh, make those opportunities. Um, some of that has changed even in my memory. Um, I remember when we first had a song leader on Sunday mornings, it was required that it was a married man. And um, I, don't think, I don't remember thinking that, you know, I wish I could be up there doing that or anything, but um, I think that's a good change that we've made. I've heard young married people, young married men in the past saying that sometimes they're all of a sudden discover that now they're qualified to teach Sunday school because um, they are married and maybe peers their age or even older were not on the list. I think we've changed, we've done some changes in how we do that as well. So there, there are opportunities uh, there for that. Uh, number two, under how the church could view singles is invite genuine friendships with single adults. Invite them to your house, include them in social activities and Bible studies 
And this is something I, I see happening as well. Just this past New Year, we had, I was invited to a New Year's party that included young married couples, it included older singles, and that was a good time of fellowship together. I have two more blog quotes that give some perspective on how marriage and singlehood can both reflect the church. And we hear a lot at, at weddings and in sermons about how marriage is a picture of Christ in the church, and it, and it is that. Um, I've found, found some information where it gives kind of a unique perspective on how singlehood can reflect the church as well. Um, this is another quote from the blog, the Intersect blog that I came across. It says, marriage is designed to be a beautiful picture of the gospel so that when someone looks at a godly marriage, they are pointed to the love of Christ, the love Christ has for them. Likewise, godly singleness also communicates some gospel truth. Just as marriage mirrors Christ and his bride, singleness showcases the sufficiency of Christ. He is enough. Because of Christ's work on the cross, he is all we ever need. Another quote from Lori Ferguson Wilbert, this was on the Lifeway blog, and she's referring to the church here as she talks. She's been single for centuries and watched hundreds of thousands of her friends marry. She's been groaning eternal the longing for Christ is more than in their for both single undistracted and fulfilled until Christ's return. For married couples, it says even marriage cannot provide eternal and lasting joy. So I thought that, that uh, quote was kind of interesting in putting the perspective on looking toward Christ's return. And I was thinking of that yesterday as Joseph was preaching and uh, just how singles could demonstrate that the marriage is... Christ and the church, um, maybe in heaven, demonstrates that a little more, um, and the, the love Christ has for his church now as well, but the, the longing for Christ to return can demonstrate the single. Uh, a couple of verses that go with that, Romans 8, to 25. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now, and not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of our body. For we are saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? But if we hope for that we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. And like it mentions there in verse 23, that hope is the redemption of our bodies, but it's not only that, it's also the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ. In Titus chapter 2, it mentions that a little bit more. Uh, Titus 2, 13 and 14. Looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. I'd like to go now into... The, the second section and address some of the questions that the committee uh, gave to me in, in uh, preparing for this topic. The one question was, at your stage in life being an older single, how can you work in the church? And my first thought was, well, some of the ways are, are the same as for anybody, and that could, could possibly be said, but on thinking, thinking it more, thinking about it more, um, I came up with a few ideas. This is going to vary for different people, obviously, and if you ask another older single this, they might answer it completely different from, from how I did, but uh, different personalities and giftings. Uh, some people might prefer to lead out in a project. Some might prefer to do things behind the scenes. 
For me personally, leading singing, leading singing is something I enjoy and have found fulfillment in doing uh, in the past. Taking care of the church relay system might seem fairly minor, but that's something that um, can make it feel like I'm contributing something to the church, um, to the local body here specifically. I believe Christian education is an important part of preparing the next generation of the church and even the children's current participation and, and thoughts uh, toward church. And so I consider that a, an important part of, of church and consider it a privilege to be able to be involved in the church indirectly in that way um, by teaching at Weavertown School. Another thing that older singles can be involved in is giving. Not that married people can't be involved in this too, but uh, not having responsibilities of taking care of a family sometimes makes it easier. Uh, giving in more than just money, uh, money included, because not having dependents, money could be uh, more plentiful in some situations. Time uh, can be more easily given maybe on a Saturday to help them with a project or spur of the moment things um, that can arise, uh, more flexibility in, in schedule possibly. Another question that I was given was, what does being a part of a church mean to you? And this, I think, would not, I mean, this is, this is my opinion, but is not necessarily a reflection just on, on singlehood. Uh, one of the things I thought of is brotherhood. Being part of a church, being part of a group of people that have something in common and care for each other. John 13, 34 to 35 says, A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples if ye have love one to another. Uh, another one of my points is about outreach, and this verse goes with that as well, um, that we should reach out. We'll get to that a little bit more in a moment. Another one is encouragement. Having people to share with and knowing that they want you to succeed in life. Hebrews 10.25 says, Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more, as ye see the day approaching. Now, exhorting maybe has a little stronger idea than just the word encouraging sometimes, but uh, being there for people and encouraging people in, in rough times in life and just even uh, giving compliments and, and seeing what people are, are doing in their lives can, can be a blessing to them and, and to you. The next one uh, that I thought of for what being part of a church means is accountability, blessing each other and looking out for each other's spiritual wel welfare. Uh, Galatians 6, 1 says, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, you which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. And maybe in a huge church sometimes it seems like that one can, can fall through the cracks, but I think we do a good job of having, having smaller groups, having Bible study groups, having support groups, and being there for each other and, and keeping each other accountable. Another one is, is outreach, like I mentioned before, shining God's love to those around us near and far. Acts 1.8, Jesus told his disciples, But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. So that's, that's part of what I see as being a, a part of a church is, is reaching out as well. We can do that far away. We can do it close by. In, in recent years, we've 
had people from far, far away coming to uh, more local areas and, and make some of that even easier. Another question was, what things that you see other people doing challenge you to being a tool for Christ in building the church? I didn't really come up with specific things here, and I don't have a lot under this point, but I think one thing that challenges and encourages me uh, is when I see other people using their gifts to serve the church. And when we see people doing that, that, can, that encourages me to also exercise my gifts in building the church, and we can learn from each other and, and be a blessing to one another in that way. Uh, the fourth thing, the fourth question was, what is your vision for the church as you work? And I was thinking of some of the points that I had on this one as, as Lowell was talking tonight about, about unity and how we, we work together. Um, that would be, that's one of the visions that I have for the church in, in working together. Unity as opposed to uniformity, which they're pretty close, pretty close in the, the sound of the words, but we come from different families different backgrounds, we have different talents and abilities, we think about things differently, and our working together well as a body comes not from all doing the same thing the same way, which would be uniformity, but in each doing our part as we're reaching for a common goal. And obviously, a key to that is that we know that we are all unified in salvation through the blood of Jesus Christ, and that gives us a common goal. Another vision that I have for the church is a kingdom focus. It can be easy to get caught up in the here and now, but if we're focused on God's kingdom, instead of the kingdoms of this world, it will impact the way we think. It will impact how we spend our time and our money. We'll be promoting God's kingdom to others and recruiting them to join, which, of course, would be the missions, the outreach idea that, that I already mentioned. Uh, it seems like this past week, and past weeks and months, there's been extra opportunity to, to speak out uh, for, for Christ and for focusing on the, the right kingdom instead of getting caught up with things around us that we don't agree with or uh, things that we might fear, but focusing on the future and on God's kingdom here and now and what we can anticipate in that in the future. Moving on to the, the third part examples of singles in the Bible. And these are several people that I chose to highlight for their faith and service to God. They were dedicated to the tasks that God had for them, and they worked faithfully in their singlehood. The first one is Nehemiah. Um, the Bible does not specifically say that Nehemiah was single, um, but it doesn't say that he wasn't either. So for the purposes of this, I think uh, I'm going to consider that or assume that he was maybe he took initiative on a project and overcame lots of adversity and avoided the distractions and got the work accomplished. Nehemiah heard about the need to rebuild the wall, arranged that he was free from his responsibilities with the king and traveled to Jerusalem to make it happen. Once there, he got the support of the people to start the project. They soon faced opposition, but Nehemiah was confident in the face of the opposition. And I'm gonna jump around here a little bit in the book of Nehemiah and read some of the verses, especially the ones where he faced opposition. Nehemiah 2, 19 to 20. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the servant, the Ammonite, and Geshem the Arabian heard it, they laughed us to scorn and despised us and said, what is this thing that ye do? Will ye rebel against the king? Then answered I them and said unto them, the God of heaven, he will prosper us therefore. 
We his servants will arise and build. She have no portion, nor right, nor memorial in Jerusalem. So even though they faced that adversity, the building got underway, but the mocking continued. Nehemiah 4, verses 1 to 3. But it came to pass that when Sanballat heard that we builded the wall, he was wroth and took great indignation and mocked the Jews. And he spake before his brethren and the army of Samaria and said, So the rabbi said, And they're still mocking building of the wall together. So next, joined together, putting themselves hindrances and distractions continued as well. Even though they were making good progress, this time they needed, they tried hard to get Nehemiah to come meet them and totally pull him away uh, from the work. But he didn't, didn't budge. Nehemiah 6, 1 to 4. Now it came to pass when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arabian and the rest of our enemies heard that I had builded the wall and that there was no breach left therein, though at that time I had not set up the doors upon the gates, that Sanballat and Geshem sent unto me, saying, Come, let us meet together in, in some one of the villages in the plain of Ono. But they thought to do me mischief. And I sent messengers unto them, saying, I'm doing a great work so that I cannot come down. Why should the work cease whilst I leave it and come down to you? Yet they sent unto me four times after this sort, and I answered them after the same manner. So they were persistent. They were trying to get him away from the work, but he was also persistent and stuck to the work that he was called by God to do. Jumping to verse 15, where they finally completed the wall. So the wall was finished in the 20 and 5th day of the month, Elul, in, the 50, in 50 and 2 days. So they accomplished the task in an amazing short amount of time under the leadership of Nehemiah. The second person I'd like to look at is, is Dorcas, or Tabitha. We don't have a whole book on Dorcas like we do for Nehemiah, but we do know that she was involved in giving material aid to those in need. When Dorcas died, many of the widows that she had helped were there mourning her death. History suggests that she may have been a widow herself, but apparently had the means and the skills to make clothes for the less fortunate. And I'll be reading from Acts 9, verses 36 to 42, uh, where it talks about Dorcas. Now there was at Joppa a certain disciple named Tabitha, which by interpretation is called Dorcas. This woman was full of good works and alms deeds, which she did. And it came to pass in those days that she was sick and died, whom when they had washed, they laid her in an upper chamber. And forasmuch as Lydda was nigh to Joppa, and the disciples had heard that Peter was there, they sent unto him two men, desiring him that he would not delay to come to them. Then Peter arose and went with them. When he was come, they brought him into the upper chamber, and all the widows stood by him, weeping, and showing the coats and garments which Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all forth and kneeled down and prayed, and turning him to the body, said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and lifted her up. And when he had called the saints and widows, presented her alive. And it was known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. So by being faithful in her life, it brought people around, and Dorcas was mourned, but people were also drawn to her when she was brought back to life in God working through Peter, and she was faithful, and it doesn't really tell us details there. I'd like to think she went right back and picked up to her uh, sewing and continued making clothing for people as she saw needs. Third person is another one that we don't have much about, and that is Anna. 
we do know that Anna was a widow. We don't know much about her, but we know she was faithful in speaking of the Messiah to those that she met. In Luke 2, 36 to 38, it talks about Anna and her encounter with Joseph and Mary and Jesus. And there was one Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was of great age and had lived with an husband seven years from her virginity. And she was a widow of about fourscore and four years, which departed not from the temple, but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. And, and she coming in that instant gave thanks likewise unto the Lord, and spake of him to all that looked for redemption in Jerusalem. I like that last phrase especially. She saw Jesus as a baby here, knew that this was the Messiah, just like Simeon, who was also there in that same story. But she spake of him to all that looked for redemption in, in Jerusalem. People were looking for their Messiah, and she was in the temple, had interaction with people day to day, it sounds like, and was faithful in proclaiming that to those right around her. She didn't go on missionary journeys uh, like Paul, but she spoke the word as she had opportunity. Number four is Paul, and that's probably one of the people we, we think of first, maybe when we think of single people in the Bible. He was faithful in traveling to spread the gospel and facing the suffering that he encountered along the way. In Acts 9, after Paul's dramatic conversion, God, in talking to Ananias, said, Go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. Paul had the opportunity to share the gospel with a lot of people in his lifetime, and his words continued to live on through his writings. In 1 Corinthians 7, verse 8, he says, I say, therefore, to the unmarried and widows, it's good for them if they abide, even as I. By what he says here, I think Paul realized that the specific, he realized the specific call that God had on his life and that it was more easily carried out in his singlehood. These verses can't be taken out of context to say the Bible says we shouldn't get married. He goes on to explain his point a little more in verses 32 to 35. But I would have you without carefulness. He that is unmarried careth for the things that belong to the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But he that is married careth for the things that are of the world, how he may please his wife. There is difference also between a wife and a virgin. The unmarried woman careth for the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and in spirit. But she that is married careth for the things of the world, how she may please her husband. And this I speak for your own profit, not that I may cast a snare upon you, but for that which is comely, and that ye may attend upon the Lord without distraction. Paul gives plenty of teaching other places in his epistles about marriage. Here he's speaking specifically from personal experience and how it related to his calling in life. And the extensive traveling he did on his missionary journeys would not have been very practical with a family. I want to look at, at Paul's interaction with Aquila and Priscilla. And I think this is a good picture of a married couple and a, and a single working together well and some of the interaction that they had. Um, in Acts 18, 1 to 3, it says, After these things, Paul departed from Athens and came to Corinth and found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, lately come from Italy, with his wife Priscilla, because that Claudius had commanded all Jews to depart from Rome, and came unto them. And because he was of the same craft, he abode with them and wrought, for by their occupation they were tent makers. They had something in common, not just in their occupation, but more importantly, in their, their love for God. 
and their willingness to spread the gospel. Verse 18, it mentions that Paul tarried there a good while, and when he left Corinth, Aquila and Priscilla even went with him. In Paul's testimony in Philippians 3, he talks about his goal of knowing Christ and the power of Christ's resurrection and pressing toward the eternal goal. And he talks about, in verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his suffering, ends up in verse 14 by saying, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. In conclusion, there's work for everyone, whether we're single, like Paul or Dorcas, or married, like Aquila and Priscilla, for example, that we talked about, and we all need to do our part. In all the work we do as a local body here at Weavertown and as part of God's global church, let's remember to give the credit to God because we're working for his glory and he's the one working through us. I'd like to read yet from two more passages of scripture that, that talk about that a little bit and how God works through us. Philippians 2, 13 to 16 says, For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Do all things without murmurings and disputings, that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world. Holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. And Hebrews 13, 20 to 21, we often think of this as a, a benediction, um, but it talks about working for God in the situations that we are in life. Now unto the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. So it's through Jesus Christ that we can do the work, and I trust that we can each work in the church and in our lives and be an encouragement to one another in whatever um, situation God has called us to in life. Let's stand for closing prayer.